wonderfully read. Um, and every preacher in the room is going, what is he doing? How is he gonna to manage to tackle eight, those 18 verses? They're so packed, full of meaning, he's mad. Um, but it does feel like normal service returns for us this morning in so many ways. Uh, our preaching has been pretty thematic uh, over the past few months as we've been going through something called Partnership of the Heart, preparing for what we call partnership, but a lot of other churches call membership. And then we had Advent, but now finally, we're, uh, we want to be most of the time verse by verse preaching uh, this series in John uh, we're beginning today I could not be more excited about. John is writing, uh, written, he is writing <laughs> with plain talking, no messing, simplicity, while at the very same time John throughout the gospel somehow writes in layers of meaning and to the complexities of life and that's such a gift to us as we go through this series. No matter where you are, this is for you. No matter what you're wrestling with, there is life to be found in the book of John. Um, with other short breaks, we reckon this is gonna take us about 18 months, by the way, um, because we don't wanna just rush through it. Even though we're taking all of the prologue today, the first 18 verses, uh, actually our pace will be as slow as it needs to be so that we can really garnish, uh, garnish, that's the wrong word, so we can really gather from um, God's word what we can. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is repeated in different ways, six times in the gospel, and the disciple who also wrote one to three John and Revelation. I often think how incredible it is that someone like John or James, the brother of Jesus, who think about it, G James would have seen Jesus as a snotty boy. It's his brother. Hormone overdose teenager. And still could say, I see no sin in him. I believe he is the Messiah, God in the flesh, and I'm going to follow him with my whole life. And the same in many ways could be said of John because John was his closest friend. He sees who Jesus really is when the pressure's on, when life's not all that you might want it to be. He sees him, and yet he writes this biographical account, and it makes it all the more extraordinary. John didn't write about his friend and savior a couple of centuries removed. He recalls what he saw this very close, intimate portrait that he has. He was up close, and now he shares what he saw up close with us. So as we go through this series, I want us to keep remembering, actually this is an up close account from someone who was really close to Jesus, and he's giving us a glimpse of what it was like. So, if you are interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he came to do, you're in the right place. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe what Jesus did and said, John the evangelist focuses on who Jesus is and what his coming means for us. And we know John's motive for writing this, okay? So spoiler alert, this is why the whole thing is written. John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And if you're thinking, oh, I'm already a Christian, that's cool, okay, this is for other people so that they can, you know, believe in the Messiah. Um, I already believe, so I'll be all right. I'll just chill here for 18 months while the rest of you are having a look at this. No, no. Actually, there is life for you to be had in every single sermon, in every single word. Because just like the description Jesus gives us in John 15 of a vine and a branch, we are to be like branches, attaching ourselves to the life of Jesus and to keep finding life there. We keep finding life in Jesus. As John will describe later on, it's grace upon grace. Grace and more grace. The more you read and understand what John is saying, the more we see Jesus and the more we receive his life-giving truth. So this 18-verse prologue that we just heard so beautifully read is packed. He says the ultimate things about Jesus in the opening lines. So don't worry, okay? If you don't get it all first time round, it's all right. Because really what's happening here is he's laying it all out and then through the life of Jesus, he shows why all this is true. He says, look, this is how he did it. This is how he went about it. This is how I know that he is this and he is that. This is how I know who Jesus is. All these things I say in the first 18 verses, I can show you in his life. So we'll try and get as much as we can as we begin in what Don Carson, one of the commentators who I've been reading um, as I've been preparing for this, called the foyer of John. But don't worry if you don't, aren't able to digest all of it in this first go. All right? I think we should pray. Oh, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit and give us the illumination we need shine on us shine on us throughout this series and may it change us may we look back on these weeks together looking closely at your word and listening to what you have to say and would, and would we be able to say wow Jesus did this in me I saw more of him and it changed me And Lord, for those who maybe are just trying to work out, who is Jesus? Is he he someone I should follow? Lord, I I pray that you would speak so, so clearly. I pray that you would reveal yourself and that they would fall in love with you. And they would see that you are the reason for life. In fact, you are the one who gives life. And so come, Lord, speak life, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Jesus was in the beginning. I uh, used to study and did a little bit of work in public relations. It doesn't make me a bad person, okay? Um, But one of the things that you learn about early on is uh, how to do a press release. And when you do a press release, you don't write it like you would maybe write uh, in other writing. In fact, you want to give away just about everything that you can as early as possible so that you can hook people into reading what it is that you have to say and that the headlines are all there. The The five W's, you want them right there. The who, the where, the what, the why, and the when. And you want to make it impactful enough 
that it gives people a nudge to click or to read down. Well, John's prologue is a little like a heavenly press release. John starts with a bang when he begins with the when. Not the big bang, but a preeminent and explosive claim about Jesus. If there was a big bang, it, it all it came after this pre-bang bang. John begins his account of the life of Jesus, not in his baptism, not in the stable, not even in the womb, but in eternity, in pre-existence, pre-matter, pre-cosmos, pre-primordial, pre-time. Later in verse 14, we see the word became flesh. But for now, John is really careful to not say that Jesus, the word, became, but that he was. In the beginning, was the word. He is, as we sing at Christmas, very God, begotten, not created. He is eternal God. He is not created. He is before matter and before time. If you're familiar with the Bible, I'm hoping this opening verse has taken you somewhere else immediately. You've been transported to the opening words of all the Bible, in the beginning, God. And that is what John is trying to do, and that theme continues throughout his account of the life of Jesus. In some ways, we're going to get, uh, need to get used to kind of transporting ourselves to the Jewish synagogues of the first and second century, where people are asking the question, are these claims about Jesus a break from Judaism, a strange new cult, or could it be Judaism's continuation? Is it actually a preordained progression? It's fulfillment. John is getting us ready to see that this Jesus is all that the law and the prophets have promised. And that to believe in Jesus is actually more Jewish than Judaism itself. These Jews are probably in Ephesus, surrounded by Greek Hellenistic culture, an outpost of the Roman Empire, and the written language of the day for everyone is Greek. And so John is, of course, writing in Greek too. And so when John penned the word, it is literally logos, and can be understood in a whole bunch of ways. One of the cultural ways of using Logos was a sense of rational thought. It's probably the one that we would be most familiar with. It's a word where we get logical, and why the Latin word logi is found in biology, theology, psychology, and so on. And John does seem to have an element of that in mind. He's reasoning that without Jesus, none of life is possible. But like we've already seen, John layers meaning. And actually what's first in mind here for John and first in mind for these hearers in these synagogues is that Logos must be identified in the same instinctive way that those of you who are familiar with the Bible did. You went straight to Genesis 1 in the beginning. God. And actually, they would go there for word too, because word is understood from that moment on to be something very significant in the Old Testament. 
He is the Word who creates. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the Word of the Lord, the, ho- the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And that's what we see then in verse 3 of, of our passage. He is the Word of the prophets, like we see at the beginning of Jeremiah. The Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It is the word of the Lord that came to the prophets. He is the word who brings life-giving transformation. Isaiah 55, 11 puts it this way. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. He is the word who judges. Psalm 29.3 declares the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. He is the word who heals and resurrects from the dead. Like Psalm 107.20 says, he sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. So the Word is with God and is God, and He is the creator of all the heavens and the earth, revealer of God's message, bringer of transforming life, judge over all, healer of hurt and broken people, and the giver of resurrection life. That is the Word in which they would have first identified when John begins his gospel this way. In other words, the Word is the fulfillment and the embodiment of the whole revelation of God. Later in 1837, John records Jesus' words, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. Okay, what's he going to say? Why why did he come into the world? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We take all that together, and the writer to the Hebrews sums it up beautifully. The beginning of of the book. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Want to know the meaning of life? Want to know God? Look no further than this. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Word. But why did John start this way? It's so different from the other Gospels, isn't it? Why does he begin with eternal God? Why this emphasis on divine glory? Well, perhaps one reason is to help us to avoid the huge danger of reducing Jesus to just some moral teacher with miracle-making ability. He is not like Confucius or Gandhi. He is a great teacher, and no one can match his moral example. He is meek and mild, compassionate and merciful, gentle and lowly, loving and kind, And we will see that. And we must not miss that. 
But John opens this way so we get really clear that at the very same time, Jesus, who is all those things, is also eternal God. As John says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John's getting Trinitarian on us, which actually we'll see again and again in John. He wants us to see that Jesus is both distinct from God the Father while also being one with God. And in verse 14, that verse that kind of holds the whole prologue, this whole introduction together, we get even more detail. The Word is the one and only Son who came from the Father. Jesus is the ultimate embodied message of God because he is God and he is the Son of God. Oh, hold on a wee minute. <laughs> you kind of just need to come up for a bit of breath there, don't we? Like, time out. What do we mean? Now, if your mind has just been fried, that's probably a good sign that you're on the right track. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in glory and majesty, and it's not a concept that we have another category for. Every analogy ends up in heresy. Do you remember the youth talks, those of you who went to church when you were younger? As the kids come by? You might have your youth worker out the front with a table. And they've put a little Bunsen burner, maybe not a Bunsen burner. I'm back in science class. A little, um, a little camping stove. Thank you, whoever said that camping stove and then I had my little glass of uh, oh no I didn't do this I mean I've done this a little glass of uh, <laughs> I think I might have a little glass um, which has ice in it and then another glass which is water right and you can see them desperately trying to make sure that they, they get enough steam before the ice melts and then the ice just looks like the water because it's not like ice anymore, it is actually just water and can't even get enough steam to, to rise. And they all become kind of indistinguishable. Well, that one, don't do it, okay, never use that because you end up in heresy, okay? It's just not a good idea. There's no good analogy for this. It's mystery. And there are things in Scripture that we just have to marvel at and go, I don't know. I know this, one God, three persons. And then I worship and I marvel. The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, this is a great mystery, talking about the Trinity. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. Amen. And that's where we're going to leave it. It's a hugely important truth, but we must not go further than the Bible reveals. It is vital that we also don't do that. When in the beginning, before God created the heavens and the earth, we read, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's Genesis 1-2. Now, it's hard to comprehend pitch black, and to have any understanding of being in a kind of nothing void. But before there was light, only emptiness and darkness existed. 
even that word existed makes me uncomfortable. John says no life can exist except through Jesus, and John says that his life is the light of all mankind, verse 4. So without Jesus, no life. And so far, all the context, context has been then, in the beginning, pre-existent. But the people who were listening in these synagogues knew that life wasn't all it was supposed to be. Life felt more dark than it did light. Even when the sun was shining, there was a gloomy, dark valley in our souls. Jesus was in the beginning, but Jesus is also a new beginning. As people listened and debated, they might have asked, what about this spiritual darkness? Perhaps you're asking something similar. Sure, I can see that something has been created. I'm a part of this creation. I can, I can go that far. But what about this spiritual darkness that surrounds me? What answers do you have for that? This is all very good, but what about me? It feels pretty dark and lifeless in here. A void of nothingness. Jesus is the Word, and He is God, and nothing was created without Him. He was the light that brought life in the beginning. But can He really shine into our darkness, into my darkness? The people waited, and they hoped, and sometimes it felt in vain for the words of Isaiah the prophet to dawn. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Later, in chapter 8, verse 12, John will record Jesus' words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Extraordinary claims. Not only was Jesus in the beginning, creator God, but he's in the darkness, in the voids, and he's bursting in with great light. And he's bringing new life. Alexander Glushko, pastor of uh, the Mariupol Light of the World Church, was arrested by Russian troops at his home a few weeks ago. Heartbreaking to hear that news, along with so much other heartbreak that just keeps coming out of Ukraine. Keep praying for Ukraine. Let's not let that be a burst of prayer that we had at the beginning of the war. Keep praying for them. And it's been hard to hear of what's happening to believers and to those who are trying to remain or go and be a witness. But I loved the hope that came out of that story. 
simply by the name of the church, the light of the world church. Because at the very same time, Russia was bombarding its energy sources in Ukraine. And people were in literal darkness. Even in the darkest of places. Here is someone and a church who have given their lives to following Jesus because they see that he is the light. They've even called their church Light of the World Church. And even in that dark, dark place, Jesus is shining. Even in that prison right now, Jesus is shining. There is no place that he cannot reach with his light. The world might be shrouded in darkness, but the light that shines in the darkness has come, and the darkness has not overcome it. I wonder what the people in these first century synagogues expected Jesus' arrival to be like, this Messiah. What would the Messiah's arrival be like? Perhaps some of the preparation that John lays out here doesn't come as a great surprise. A final prophet, John the Baptist, an Elijah-like figure, Not John the Evangelist, who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist, preparing the way for the true light, verse 9, who says he is for everyone, for all nations, not just for the Jews, not just for Israel, but for all nations. This blessing to Abraham for all nations was going to be bursting out from this moment when the Messiah comes. We will find out a lot more about John the Baptist next week. But the first big surprise to them, I think, might have been the born-again moment. Like we see in the bewilderment of the religious leader Nicodemus later in the Gospel. But they knew they needed resurrection life. And John begins, the death of your old life and a rebirth for new life is required. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be celebrating that. Because people who have been walking in the darkness have seen a great light. They've put their faith and their trust in Jesus, and they're going to come and declare it. We're going to have baptisms. I reckon it's probably the first full immersion baptisms that have been in this building, so we're really thankful um, that we're able to do it here. And we're really excited because we're able to help these guys share their story and show that when they go down into the water, they die to their old life and they've been brought to new life in Jesus. They've put their faith in the light of the world who comes and brings life. He is the bringer of life. But how would it come, this new life? How would it actually happen? What would their Messiah look like? How would he do it? Oh, I bet it's going to be spectacular. You can imagine them talking, can't you? Will it be peals of thunder, flashes of light, pillars of fire? Verse 14 is like the crescendo to the overture here. But it's a surprising note to hear in those synagogues. The words became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled. He entered the neighborhoods. The light came, not with fireworks, 
but in the form of a baby. One popular view doing the rounds in those days was an early form of a set of beliefs called Gnosticism. And they believed that humanity's greatest problem was that they were imprisoned by their own flesh, their own bodies, and they were in need of a kind of mystical and transcendent knowledge that would allow them to escape that prison. But here is God, says John. He isn't far off like you think. He's not waiting for you to go on a spiritual journey and obtain the knowledge and practices you require to find him. No, that's not where you find God. He has come to you. He has come to us. He became flesh and remains flesh as the resurrected Christ enthroned at the right hand of God. Our hope then is not in the pursuit of mystical experience, but trust, belief in the God who came to become man. Our sinless representative who has removed our sin and given us life. The glory of God has come. Second half of verse 14. And he makes his entrance embryonically in a very different beginning than the first. Through a physical, pinch my skin, feel my flesh, no longer God behind a curtain in the tabernacle or temple, no longer behind the boundary at the foot of Mount Sinai, but with us. One of us. He is face to face. He walks with us. He walks in our shoes. At Moses' death, he lays his hands um, on Joshua. Do you remember this story? And actually, if you look down here at verses 15 and eight, through 18, it, it's kind of, John's kind of reminding the people of this story. He lays his hands on Joshua and prays over him. And Joshua is filled with the Spirit of God. And as the succession takes place, where Moses hands over leadership to Joshua, and then Joshua goes into the land. Do you remember the story? This is what is said of Moses. It's like this little short obituary. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses was Israel's greatest prophet because he knew God face to face. And no one one had ever seen God face to face. And done all these signs, but this man, Jesus, is God's face. Verse 18. And is not, like the law, a sign pointing to God, but is God himself. Moses was a foreshadow of a far greater leader. Jesus. He handed over to Joshua, whose name means Jesus. 
Joshua went into the land to conquer the land. But that was nothing on what would come through the word, through Jesus, who had come to the nations to bring light to all the world. This is the one Israel had been waiting for and the one all of us have been waiting for. He doesn't only show glimpses of truth. He is truth. He doesn't just point to a saviour. He is the Messiah. He doesn't show how we should live through the law. He fulfills the law perfectly. He doesn't only bring a message from God. He is God. He doesn't only bring a sacrifice to the altar, as John the Baptist would declare in next week's passage. He is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This is his fullness, God in the flesh, come to make a way for the truly great problem to be overcome, sin. My sin, your sin, the sin of the world. And as the story will unfold, Jesus takes on our sin, absorbs the punishment we deserved on the cross, and dies. God dies. He dies. For John, in those days, he would have waited, despairing. Ah, no. Did he not do it? Was he not able to cover our sin? Will he not rise from the tomb for a new life to be given? But on the third day, he rose again. And John is setting us up for all of this. Because new birth is only possible because Jesus has led the way. He has risen from the tomb. He has shone his light into the world. He has covered our sin. By becoming flesh and being pierced on the cross and bearing the weight of our sin, the punishment we deserved, we go free and now enter into grace and truth. We don't enter in by our own might. We don't need to go on some spiritual journey. We just need to trust in Jesus. <coughs> For Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh, come to reveal himself to us and bring us into the Father's arms and make us children of God. There are so many themes in these 18 verses. And I know all we've really done there is kind of skim through. But remember, John is going to show us how all of these truths find their meaning in Jesus, are shown to be true in Jesus through the rest of the gospel. And I can't wait to explore it. In the end, John writes a book called Revelation, where there will be no sun, just the radiance of the glory of the Son of God. Why? Because the true light which gives life to everyone has come. 
because he is the true source of life. The one who can give you rebirth. He can take you out of the darkness and into the light. The one you can be with eternally. Side by side, face to face, before our Father in heaven. We can enjoy a new beginning and trust that one day Jesus will shine in all his fullness. Whether you're in Ukraine right now, whether you're going through a battle with depression, whether you've just got a bit of sad at this time of year, whatever battle you face, whatever darkness you face, Jesus has come so that you might have hope in his light.